Hey guys, I hope you've been enjoying our episodes of Creogs Over Coffee. So Nick and I are trying to conduct a survey to figure out exactly who has been listening to the podcast and also to get a sense of what people enjoy from the podcast and what else they're using to learn. We're hoping to use these results to inform us as well as other creators in the new sphere of medical education with podcasts and other forms of media to bring you better resources in the future and hopefully start this revolution in MedEd. So if you'd like to help us out, go ahead and go onto the website for the survey. We'll also post it in the bottom of our episode information as well as on the website. It is https colon forward slash forward slash redcap.link slash Creogs over coffee. Thanks for your help and participation. So Nick, now that I'm starting MFM fellowship, I'm realizing that I'm very quickly losing my GYN knowledge. I know, right? We did this episode on vulvar disease and I was like, oh my God, vulvar disease. I have already lost all of my knowledge of that. Where did you find any information about GYN, Faye? So thankfully, the OBG project has all of their up-to-date information on both OB and GYN information um, that you can access online at any point. Fortunately, I've kept up with that subscription-only OBG first, which allows me to bookmark articles and summaries into my own personal library so I can find those things again that I need for studying for the boards. So if you are a fourth-year resident, you can sign up for one year for OBG first absolutely free, and trust me, it is very, very much worth it. Head on over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar and see how you too can get a free year of OBG first as a chief resident. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs over, over Coffee. coffee. So today we're going to be talking about pelvimetry, um, and I've titled this episode Pelvimetry, A New Look. <laughs> I love it. It sounds like a Star Wars episode, but not. <laughs> I wouldn't watch that Star Wars episode. <laughs> so what are our learning objectives for today? <laughs> All right. First, we're going to talk about the different types of pelvises that have been traditionally identified and categorized through pelvimetry. Then we'll actually talk about the different measurements that are used in pelvimetry. And finally, we'll learn about how pelvimetry would affect clinical care. All right, Faye, so I'm gonna let you lead off with this. What is pelvimetry? So pelvimetry is the measurement of the female pelvis that has theoretically been used to try and identify cephalopelvic disproportion. Because, you know, it sounds like a, a pretty good idea. If you are able to identify women um, who have pelvises that would not allow them to give vaginal birth, then why would you allow them to have a trial of labor, right? Sure. Avoid all of those um, all of those complications, you know, having to do a C-section in the second stage, etc. Originally, pelvimetry was described by Dr. Caldwell and Dr. Malloy in a paper titled Anatomic Variations in the Female Pelvis, Their Classification and Obstetrical Significance in 1938. So we're, you know, really going back. Um, Unfortunately, even though this seemed like a pretty good idea at the time, clinical evidence has shown that all pregnant women should actually be allowed of trial of labor regardless of pelvimetry results. And that's because there was a Cochrane review in 2017 that looked at, you know, deciding the mode of delivery for cephalic fetuses at term. 
Unfortunately, there weren't a ton of great studies, you know, measuring clinical pelvimetry versus no pelvimetry, like x-ray x -ray pelvimetry versus no pelvimetry. So really the only way that they were able to do it was to look at comparing x-ray pelvimetry versus no pelvimetry or x-ray pelvimetry versus clinical pelvimetry. And there really wasn't enough evidence to support that the use of x-ray pelvimetry for deciding mode of delivery. All they showed was that women who underwent x-ray pelvimetry were more likely to have C-sections, but there was no clear difference in perinatal outcomes in these groups. The question then is, you know, why are we even talking about pelvimetry? Because, you know, clearly it's not something that we're doing that really affects clinical care or outcomes now. Um, but, you know, we definitely want to talk about this in terms of historical purposes so that you are going to know all the measurements that people are talking about. Um, and also, it's good to know the different measurements of the pelvis that we do use. Um, but again, just as a reminder, the WHO in February of 2018 did state that routine clinical pelvimetry may increase cesarean section without clear benefit for birth outcomes. So even if you are doing clinical pelvimetry, um, you know, or you do a check on a patient before they go into labor and you feel like they have, quote unquote, a narrow pubic arch, this really shouldn't affect your judgment as to whether or not the patient should have a trial of labor. So now that I've just discredited everything that we're about to say, <laughs> Nick, talk to me about the traditional types of pelvises that Dr. Caldwell and Dr. Malloy described in their paper in 1938. Yeah. So as uh, you may have seen these before, kind of looking through textbooks or talking to you know, your attending physicians on rounds during labor, et cetera. Um, but there are four traditional types of pelvises that were described. The first is the gynecoid pelvis, um, and this is the one that's considered most favorable for vaginal delivery and the pelvis that is most common in women. This is characterized by a round to slightly oval pelvic inlet. The android pelvis is kind of the next pelvis that's there that, again, by its name is suggestive more of the, like, male type pelvis, if you will. It's a triangular pelvic inlet with very prominent ischial spines and a more angulated pubic arch. This is supposedly linked to longer labor and the potential for cephalopelvic disproportion. The other two are the less common types. There's the anthropoid pelvis that has the widest transverse diameter overall that's less than the actual anteroposterior or obstetrical diameter of the pelvis. This is traditionally thought to lead to more commonly occiput posterior presenting babies. And then finally, the platypaloid pelvis, the most fun one to say. Um, but this is a pelvis with a flat pelvic inlet that has a very shortened obstetrical or anteroposterior diameter. Um, this also has a wide or transverse pelvic inlet that is often described as oval or kidney shaped. And this also is supposedly difficult for vaginal birth. But again, worth it to say one more time that clinical evidence suggests that a trial of vaginal birth should be done for all women, regardless of what you think their pelvimetry is. Faye, we kind of talked a little bit about those measurements that like obstetrical diameter and stuff. Um, and I feel like a creog question or two always comes up about this for some reason. So yeah, what totally. are the different measurements of the pelvis? So I think we need to first divide these measurements into the different parts of the pelvis. So we'll talk about the pelvic inlet and the measurements that we do there. We'll talk about the interspinous distance and then also the pelvic outlet and the measurements there. 
And at this point of the podcast is where I want to say that while we shouldn't be making clinical decisions about trial of labor based on pelvimetry, pelvimetry can help us in the sense of determining whether or not we could attempt an operative vaginal delivery or um, consider rotating a fetal head. I think what exactly goes into these clinical decisions is beyond the scope of this podcast because a lot of this, I believe, comes from experience and working on labor and delivery. However, Dr. Christopher Moravsky has a great YouTube video that we will link that shows a lot more detail about the pelvis itself and also how to determine certain aspects of pelvimetry that I think are much easier to show on a video than over an audio podcast. So in terms of the pelvic inlet, there are two measurements that we usually care about. One is the transverse diameter of the pelvic inlet. And so this is the measurement between the iliopectineal lines of the widest transverse distance of the pelvis. So we're going to post a picture of this online. If you can't imagine what the iliopectineal lines are in your head, don't worry. When you see the picture, it makes a lot more sense. Um, and usually this is between 13 to 14 and a half centimeters in most people. The other measurement that we talk about is called the obstetric conjugate. Um, and this is probably something, again, that most people have heard about, but this is the line or the measurement between the closest bony points of the sacral promontory and the pubic bone next to the symphysis. So I tell most people this is almost like, um, it's almost like a more AP measurement of the pelvis compared to mm. that transverse diameter of the pelvic inlet. And usually this is between 10 to 12 centimeters. Um, all right, Nick, what other measurements are we looking for? Yeah, so the next one that you'll hear a lot about, I think, is probably the one I hear most about clinically is the interspinous distance. Um, and this is the imaginary line that is between the closest bony points of the ischial spines. This is somewhere between nine and a half to 11 and a half centimeters on average. But again, when people talk, at least clinically about pelvimetry, I often hear this as one that's like, if the spines are really close together, it's not a good idea to offer like an operative vaginal delivery or forceps. Or if the spines are wide apart, that's what we call a adequate or roomy pelvis. So that's one that I feel like I hear a lot about still. Right. Yep. The other measurements that we'll talk about have to do with the pelvic outlet. So kind of the lower point or the more caudal point of the pelvis. One of those measurements is the sagittal pelvic outlet diameter, also known as the obstetric anteroposterior diameter of the pelvic outlet. Again, the pictures really are worth a thousand words in terms of kind of thinking about this, but they're the closest bony points of the sacrococcygeal joint and the pubic bone next to the symphysis, so kind of on the inferior portion of pubic symphysis. So again, think sacrococcygeal joint and the lowest aspect of the pubic symphysis. And again, this distance is somewhere around 9.5 to 11.5 centimeters. And then an additional point that we'll look at in the outlet is the intertuberous diameter. So this is the closest bony points of the ischial tuberosities. Again, picture worth a thousand words, but that area that you kind of sit on in the pelvis, that distance there about 10 to 12 centimeters apart typically. And I do want to just highlight why clinical pelvimetry is so hard to teach, particularly on a podcast, because I think a lot of these measurements that we do in the clinic is based on our own anatomy. So using our finger length, um, our finger width, our hand width, and specifically for that intertuberous diameter, I was taught that usually an adequate intertuberous diameter should be approximately the width of your fist, um, which is about 10 centimeters or more. But 
I have pretty small hands. So for me, that, you know, the width of my fist is definitely not 10 centimeters. So I think definitely for someone who wants to learn good clinical pelvimetry, if that's a skill that you want to have, this definitely needs to be done in the clinical setting. Faye, I mentioned a little earlier that I feel like the thing that I got a sense for always are like the interspinous diameter, but what do you ever use pelvimetry yourself? Um, I will say that I probably, you know, use what you talked about, the interspinous distance as well. Most of the time, like what I'll do is I'll try and find the ischial spine and like see how many fingers I can put between the ischial spine and the sacrum. And that kind of gives me a little guidance, at least for like one half of the pelvis, how much quote unquote room there is. So, you know, Mm -hmm. if I really can't put my two fingers between that ischial spine and the sacrum, then I feel like for me, that's a quote unquote smaller pelvis. But if I can comfortably put, you know, three fingers, at least for me, that tells me that this patient has what we call a roomy pelvis. So just one thing that I at least kind of use, I don't really use a lot of these other measurements. And I I will have to say that a lot of these measurements are done using x-rays or other imaging techniques. And actually when, you know, that paper came out in 1938, a lot of these measurements were done via x-ray. I think the the diameters, it is a good historical context to have upstairs. Totally. You definitely hear about this all the time when you, especially when you talk to older docs, particularly the ones that are teaching you forceps and stuff. They seem to be the ones that really have a good sense for this. And so maybe it is worth something, but let everybody have a trial of labor. Of course. All right. I guess we should try and summarize really quick. So we first talked about exactly what pelvimetry was, which is basically the measurement of the female pelvis, um, which has traditionally been used to try and identify CPD or cephalopelvic disproportion. Unfortunately, clinical evidence has um, not borne this out. So basically all pregnant women should be allowed a trial of labor regardless of pelvimetry results, you know, if they are candidates for vaginal delivery. Um, Because a Cochrane review has essentially just shown that where pelvimetry was used, that women were just more likely to have C-sections, but there was no clear difference in perinatal outcomes. We then moved on to talk about the traditional type of pelvises. And again, there are four that are traditionally categorized. There's the gynecoid pelvis, which is the most common, the round to slightly oval pelvic inlet, the android pelvis that has a triangular inlet with prominent ischial spines and a more angulated pubic arch, The anthropoid pelvis, where the widest transverse diameter is less than the anteroposterior or obstetrical diameter and is thought to lead to more occiput posterior presentations. And finally, the platypoloid pelvis that has a flat inlet with a shortened obstetrical diameter that also is wide or transverse at the inlet and is kidney-shaped in description. We also talked about the different measures of the pelvis, and this is something that I think would be worth going over just because there's always one or two CREAG questions about them. And these include measurements of the pelvic inlet, which are the transverse diameter of the pelvic inlet, the obstetric conjugate. The next set of measurements are the interspinous space, and then measurements of the pelvic outlet, which include the sagittal pelvic outlet diameter or the obstetric AP diameter, as well as the intertuberous diameter. All right. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoy this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee 1, on Facebook or Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee, or on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Creogs Over Coffee, where you can send us some support and we'll send you some swag. 
You can also find information for all of our episodes on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. If you have any questions, corrections, or ideas for future episodes, send us an email, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.